Thank you for tuning in to the Mile 40 podcast. I am Beshoy Tadros, the author of Break Barriers and Audacious, both of which are sold on Amazon. And I invite you to join me as I engage with guests to discuss those bounce back moments that we encounter on our personal journey. Mile 40 is a forum to learn about how athletes, professionals, and leaders of all backgrounds stare down moments in life where the only option is to rise up. The Mile 40 podcast strives to remind listeners that the comeback is always greater than the setback. Structure is a fixture in my day, now more than ever. I'm an early riser, and one of the first things I do every day is take Jovi, our mini golden doodle, out on her morning walk. Heading into these winter months, as the weather changes, your dog may experience a rough, dry, chapped, or even cracked nose. The dryness ranges from a bit of a dry nose to the intensely dry condition known as nasal hyperkeratosis. While nasal hyperkeratosis can often be a lifelong condition, the good news is nose butter from Rough Nose, spelled R-U-F-F, will moisturize your dog's nose back to health. Rough Nose believes in supporting your pet's health and well-being with high-quality formulated products. All products are human-grade and are made with 100% natural ingredients and were formulated by a master herbalist. Their 100% natural, human-grade supplements are free of any added preservatives, additives, flavorings, or artificial color. All ingredients are organic or ethically wild-crafted and sourced from trusted suppliers and made in the USA. Once again, Rough Nose, spelled R-U-F-F. Visit www.roughnose.com and use coupon code MILE40 for 30% off on your next purchase. Mile 40 is back for another episode. I am so grateful for all of you for continuing to ride along on this journey. It's really been incredible. Every episode as we go on, I continue to think about how it all began. And I am extremely, extremely grateful for all of you for just continuing to tune in and to really kind of soak in the tidbits of knowledge that we're picking up from these various guests. I'm extremely grateful for the guests that have come on board because although their stories have been very varying in nature. And we've been able to pick up tidbits from each of them with regards to how they've been able to battle against adversity and and walking through that pit to peak trajectory that they've all been on. It's really been influential in how I've carried forward my own day-to-day conversations, my own interactions, and how I've kind of reestablished my journey of personal growth. So without further ado, I'd like to introduce you all to today's guest. Today's guest is Danny Goldberg. Danny is a serial entrepreneur. He's the host of Bits of Gold podcast. On Bits of Gold, Danny shares inspiring stories on how to live purposefully. In each episode, Danny interviews fascinating individuals who dive deep into thought-provoking topics, offering bits of gold on navigating adversity, building resilience, finding joy, and living purposefully. 
Danny's ability to connect with his listeners is largely due to a series of unfortunate events. We are going to dive into all those events today, sure. Danny. Uh, but he had a moment in life which served as a wake-up call, essentially. And the Bits of Gold podcast, which he created, serves as a wake-up call for many in his community to live purposefully, authentically, and fully alive. Danny is also the co-founder of a seven-figure manufacturing agency and a short-term rental investor. Danny, thank you for joining me today. Thanks so much for having me on the show. Excited to be here. Yeah. So we had actually met in a uh, unique fashion. You had reached out to me on the back of um, a previous guest podcast recording that I think you had maybe caught up on either online or, or, or through LinkedIn. And, 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 you know, I love that mutual connection where we kind of were able to connect very quickly, align on the fact that we're both um, serving our communities in, in similar fashions and immediately found that synergy. So, you know, thanks for that. And, you know, I'm, I'm really excited to dive in today. I know I kind of gave you a, a little bit of an intro there, but is there anything that I missed? Anything that people need to know about you that I didn't touch on? No, you know, I'm just excited to share some of my story and hopes and in service to help others get out in the world and and wake up and have their own moment of waking up and and uh, to help them ultimately live with more purpose. Awesome. And you know, one thing I did fail to mention, and, and Danny's being a little humble here, he's also an Ironman and a marathon runner. And while this is being recorded, uh, him and I are about to lace up for New York City uh, in one week. Are you excited for uh, your second New York City marathon? Pumped, nervous, but pumped. Yeah, it's funny. The the Ironman thing, I have a buddy who's super into, who got super into fitness during COVID and um, it's now like he's doing, he just did the Ironman with the half Ironman with me and he's doing another. But, um, you know, my, a lot of my friends who do these endurance events, they always have goals. And I know that prior, prior to jumping on this, you asked, what's my goal for the marathon? They want to do really well in these things. I've been the type in these endurance events where I'm just kind of like, screw it. Yeah, I'll, I'll sign up and let's see what happens. And um, it's definitely not not the best way to go about endurance events. But that's kind of been my my uh, my my attitude as as it as it's been approaching these things. Hey, man, whatever gets you to the finish line. <laughs> uh, but, you know, for the record, you had mentioned to me, you know, you were an athlete uh, growing up um, kickboxing, correct? Yeah. So I kickboxed. Uh, I walked into a gym for the first time when I was 11 years old and uh started kickboxing like weeks after I started working out, fell in love. And that's actually how I started my first business. Uh, the business was called Golden Gear. And I sold, I started importing boxing equipment when I was 14 years old from Thailand. And I was selling it here in the States, gym to gym, really way before boutique boxing and boxing was this cool sport uh, that it is today. Uh, that was my first business that I started. And uh, the way the way that it, that came about was I was working in a gym and at 14 years old, I noticed that there was no store, but everyone had boxing gloves. And the way that my my entrepreneurial journey really starts is I was on a vacation with my family, with my dad, and we were in the hot tub. And I turned to my dad and I say, how do I build something great? My dad was an industrial designer. Mm -hmm. uh, he was extremely creative and designed all these awesome products. And I said, how do I build something great? And he said, find what you love and you'll build something amazing. And it was in that moment that I said, I love boxing. It consumed me then, still consumes me very much today. Um, and I said, why don't I serve the people in the gym and sell them equipment? So by the end of that vacation, I started my first business. I found a manufacturer overseas and started importing. I placed a small order and imported the product and started selling to people in the gym. And the business evolved and I built it from 2009 and ultimately sold it to my biggest customer in 2015. But that's very much the 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 start of my own journey in, in entrepreneurship. 
So 2009, so you're about 20 years old when you sold it? Uh, yeah, like uh, 21, right out of college. So you're right out of college and you sold, that was the first business that you sold? Yes. Wow. Um, <laughs> says, you know, I mean, that says a lot about, about you as an individual. And I mean, um, I, I think that a lot of people, um, you know, like to go down the entrepreneurial route, but what you kind of have shown in your own journey was it was something that was kind of instilled in you at a very young age. And it, it kind of seemed like second nature, uh, based on the, the timeline of that trajectory since then. So let's talk a little bit more about, you know, how that kind of entrepreneurial spirit carried on. What else have you dabbled with? Yeah. So I've done so many different things in my twenties. The, I think one of the biggest reasons what ultimately led me to, uh, looking to like sell the business. So my dad died going into my senior year of college. Mm -hmm. And I really like my dad really pushed me to, to start the business, to pursue the business. And, uh, along the way, helped me, whether it be from a, um, just teaching me things along the way, he really pushed me that there are two roads in this, in this life. You can either help someone else build their dreams, or you can have others help you build your dreams. And I think my dad had a, had a pretty interesting personal story because my dad had an, had an industrial design agency when he started his professional life and ultimately found what he wanted to do. He started his own agency and he ended up servicing different customers, helping them design products. And his largest customer ended up going to him and said, hey, you can either come work for us full time or we're going to find someone else and hire them full time. Mm -hmm. And he ultimately chose to go and work with them and ended up working with them for 20 plus years and uh, essentially, you know, buried his business, put his business to the side. And he yeah. chose that very consciously because he wanted to provide a certain lifestyle for my family. Yeah. And while my dad never said personally, like he regretted that choice and he, he loved what he did Yeah. and he got to travel all over the world and made relationships and friendships with people all over the world from um, China, Taiwan, Thailand, and he loved it. Like he was traveling overseas four times a year. Sorry. Uh, like every six weeks. So he was yeah. there for probably four months out of the year. Um, I think deep down, uh, while I wouldn't necessarily say that he deeply regretted his choice, I think somewhere he always wondered what if, what could yeah. have been. And I think that that's why he really pushed me from such a young age to pursue my childhood dreams and to pursue building this, this dream of mine. So you know, I, I share that story sort of as an anecdote. And I think that that's very much shaped the way that I perceive the world and view the world. And for me, like when I, when he died, um, I was kind of ready to try something different. And mm -hmm. I already had my hand in a new business. I helped co-found this business, Diamond MMA, yeah. uh, which was a, uh, at the time, probably still today, the world's most protective jock strap. So we designed and developed a patented jock strap that's used by UFC fighters, did I see that's the one that Joe Rogan supports? Yeah. So he got a hold of the cop and like gave, gave us a commercial during a live UFC event. Our website crashed. And that's how the business took off. Incredible. And um, yeah, that was that was a lot of fun. And I thought that that was a much bigger opportunity. Yeah. Um, so it made sense at that time, I thought, to sort of uh, move on from, from a business and start something new. And we had a lot of exciting things going on. Ultimately, I, en I ended up leaving that business after about a year and a half. Mm -hmm. um, and I ended up getting a job and I was pretty lost in the moment. Um, I had with, with my business partners at that time, we just didn't see eye to eye and how we wanted to grow the business. And I ended up leaving and I ended up uh, saying, Hey, I'll, I kind of will do just about anything. I was just kind of a curious 21 year old. Yeah. And um, I ended up 
joining an early stage startup. And this was pre they pre that company raising like any money. They were still tinkering, figuring out what they wanted to do. And I worked there for about seven months. I saw them. I was with them from when they raised their first round. And about a month four, I noticed, hey, this isn't this is actually isn't what I want to pursue. Mm-hmm. And at that time, though, I started, I moved into the Manhattan. So I had the expense of rent and all of that. Yep. So I just didn't know, like, I made a commitment to my rent and I just didn't know how to really get out of it. And I ended up going to work completely miserable every single day, day in and day out. And I started helping companies manufacture products overseas because it's something that I already knew how, how to, to do. do. Yeah. And while I was, while I was doing that, um, I just had one customer and I didn't know, like, is this a business? Is this something I'm just tinkering with? Sure. And I ultimately got let go. And I remember the day I, I knew, I knew going into the meeting that I was going to get let go. It was pretty obvious. And it was a very small company, like less sure. than five people. Yeah. Um, and I, I just remember feeling such relief because was I was one I, of the most freeing feelings you've ever experienced. Oh yeah. Because I, I was like, I finally don't have to worry about what I'm going to do <laughs> now. I'm just forced to go and do something else. Yeah. Um, it's I, a great yeah, feeling. Like, I, I experienced that early on in my career where I was like, go from a place that I really didn't want to be. And you know, when you're kind of in that situation of paying rent, you know, you don't want to be the one to jump ship knowing that you have that responsibility. Um, so it, it it's incredibly freeing when they're like, they're the ones that are telling you, um, you know, it's time. Yeah. Making, making change, especially like big career change is so challenging. And I think also, you know, it's funny when I look back on that, like I'm 21, my expenses were still relatively very small yeah. and what I'm making was, was relatively small. So, you know, it's like, uh, by by New York City standards, so it's like the stakes were really quite low. Yeah. Um. And I think back to that, you know, I, I think sometimes we we get lost in our own head, thinking that uh, we're playing this high stakes chess match. But in reality, you know, the the stakes are really quite low across the board. And I say that uh, even as someone who has like my own business, if I were to leave my business today, sure, like my business has provided a very stable, nice lifestyle for myself. But like in all reality, you know, if if, if I decided to get up and leave and start something new you know, it's, it will be hard and it'll be different, but it's not like, you know, this isn't life or death. And I think that's one of the key things that I learned, uh, you know, through the loss of my parents is that, you know, that's when the stakes are are actually quite high. When you have this life or death situation, when I I heard this quote somewhere and it really always stuck with me, but when you have a, a, um, when you, when, when you wake up and you have like a problem as it relates to work or something like that, that's an inconvenience. When you wake up and you have your health on the line, uh, that or your safety's on the line. That's that's when you have an actual problem. Yeah. And I think so often, you know, we have inconveniences that we view as problems, but in reality, they are just inconveniences. Yeah. No, that that helps really kind of shape perspective and, and kind of helping us segue um, into your story. Danny, where'd you grow up? Uh, Long Beach, Long Island. So you grew up on the South Shore of Long Island. Um, and just for context, how old are you now? Uh, Twenty nine. So you're 29 now. Um, and you had already kind of shared a little bit about your story, but let's kind of backtrack a little bit, you know, with regards to the where the origin of Bits of Gold came from. Um, you know, you had mentioned that your parents had died, but can we walk the audience through the series of events and, and kind of how old you were and did you have any siblings and, you know, and, and kind of just kind of paint the picture? Yeah, so I will go backwards and sort of answer that. So I have two older sisters. Mm-hmm. Um, one sister's two years older than me, so one's 31 and one's 35. And um, 
the the reason why I started my show was really a result of the the loss that I experienced after my mom died. I really felt as if I woke up to to living. I felt as if I woke up to I I had this mo these moments where I realized truly like the fragility in in our life and so many I can't I can't sit here and say that you know it's not unfair and that it doesn't suck and that I still don't have moments days um hours where it's completely painful and I I so wish you know I could I could snap my fingers and 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 change change the cards I was dealt but I'd be lying to you if I didn't admit that there were tremendous lessons and and bits of gold that came about through my own loss yeah. and in in recognizing those things I felt compelled to to share some of the the things that I realized in the wake of my losses yeah. um because it really helped me wake up and 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 recognize that today today is tomorrow is not guaranteed today the here and now is all I have and in knowing that I started to ask myself questions that really helped reshape how I wanted to live my life. Yeah. And I think that that's what really led me to starting starting my show about a year and a half ago. But to go to go backwards into my loss, so when I was 20 years old, um my my dad was diagnosed with with cancer. Uh, about 7 months later, he passed away. The just to give you a sense of like the perspective shift at that point, the worst thing in my life at that point was uh, maybe not getting into the initial college that I wanted to get into. And I remember when, when I was actually, uh, when I was 19 years old, so only a year before my dad died, I, I, I went to a, a college, Bentley university, yeah. really small school. And almost the day that I got there, I realized that this isn't actually where I wanted to go, but um, I applied their early decision. And I was, I was, I was there. Good school and, for an entrepreneur though. Yeah. Good school for an entrepreneur. Um, and I realized really quickly that that's not where I wanted to be. And I called my mom, um, that let me backtrack. So I realized I didn't want to be there and mm -hmm. I threw out some applications and I got rejected from where I really wanted to go, which was Syracuse. Okay. I felt totally destroyed in that moment. I felt like the world had it against me and I did not understand why I did not get in. And I remember calling my mom. I'm sure I cried. I'm sure there were tears. And I said, like, the world is so unfair. And she paused. She stopped me. And she's like, the world isn't unfair. She said, this is not a real problem. At the time, we had a family friend who, who, had, who was diagnosed with cancer, who was only a year older than me. And yeah. she said, that's a problem. You not getting this college isn't a problem. The world's not unfair. Yeah. And she tried to just sort of shift my perspective. Yeah. And obviously, you know, in that moment, it's, it's quite hard, especially when that's like the worst thing that you've ever had to deal with, not getting into the, the school of your dreams. Yeah. And, uh, you know, that up until my dad being diagnosed with cancer, that was really like the the hardest thing that I ever had to live through. I ended up, uh, it, it, it took me two years, but I did end up ultimately uh, working hard and and reapplying two years later. And I ended up you getting into Syracuse. You transferred. And I, and I ended up transferring. And um, my going into my junior year, like, so uh, it was August. My parents drive me up. Yeah. I'm so excited. I'm ecstatic to be there. They also had a great entrepreneurship program. Yep. Um, and actually leading up, my parents dropped me off, uh, October, October, November is parents weekend. Yeah. And, uh, my parents, my, my parents come up, my dad was just getting home from a trip from abroad, from China for work. 
And he said he wasn't feeling so good. And I said, no problem. Come. If you want to come this weekend, cool. If you want to come another weekend, that's fine. Um, and he's like, no, I want to see you. Gets off the plane, literally gets in the car with my mom. They drive upstate. And my dad did not look good. He was super pale. Uh, was re- My dad was a f- obese guy. He was he was really skinny. And uh, he just looked, he didn't, he didn't look like himself. Yeah. And my dad ended up, um, they stayed for a couple hours. They stayed the night. And the next morning, my dad said, like, I really don't feel good. I got, we got to go home. Mm-hmm. So they ended up going home. Um, I didn't think anything of it, but instead of going home, they drove to the hospital. And about two days later, he called me and he let me know that he was diagnosed with cancer. Oh. And at that time, my, my uncle actually called me. He was a doctor. And he said, like, your dad's going to see the best doctors in the world. And he's going to be okay. And my parents definitely was he back downstate at that point, or was he near Syracuse when he went? Oh, uh, no. So they, they went, they went back to, uh, they drove back to Long Island, but instead okay. of going to Long Island, they ended up going, I think they ended up just going directly to the hospital okay. uh, in Manhattan. And, okay. and they thought they originally thought maybe he caught something overseas yeah. from like sure. eating something. Yeah. Um, my dad would eat everything. Like you put it yeah. in front of him, uh, especially abroad, like with the factories, you know, he would eat, he would always send me pictures of bugs, snakes, <laughs> brain, every, everything. And, um, yeah, so he was diagnosed and my parents really wanted to shelter me. That was more like yeah. a, a choice that they made, but they wanted to shelter me from, uh, like the reality of how sick he was, he was. And, um, he was really given like a terminal diagnosis from the beginning, wow. but I, I just wasn't aware of that. And truly up until that, like, I'd never thought that he was going to die. Yeah. And I just, and I just thought that he was going to like, it was like a cold, but he needed some chemo. And he was going to be okay. Doctors get some treatment and that eventually over time, I'll be okay. Yeah. And also I'd say at that point, everyone, like everyone close to me who I, for the most part that had cancer, like they got some form of treatment and they were okay. So that was what I knew. Um, And every time I'd come home, he was progressively worse. So it started uh, when I came home the first time he was, he was uh, just skinnier, weaker, not so hungry. Next time he was in a, uh, he was using a walker. The next time he was in a wheelchair. The next time he couldn't really go from like his bed to the bathroom without being totally out of breath. And how long of a period of time was this? Seven months. Okay. Um, so seven months go by and, um, this is the summertime. So I'm, I'm home now. Um, my dad died in June. So school ends, I don't know, late, late May. I come home. Yeah. And I had, at that time, I was still in my boxing glove business and I had a trip planned to go to Boston to go visit some, some gyms. Yeah. And my dad was, uh, my dad was in the hot, my dad was going to the hospital because, uh, he was going to get some radiation to his hip sure. and, uh, to hopefully help him be able to like, to, to be able to walk more easily. Yeah. And, uh, my dad sat me down and he said, they've done like, I'm done with the chemo now. Um, it, it wasn't successful. There's nothing more that they can do. Mm-hmm. Um, we're going to go on one more big family vacation. I'm going to get some radiation to my hip and I'm going to be able to walk again. And we're going to plan one, one more big trip. I don't know how much time I have left. It could be years. That's what he said. Could be months. Um, could be weeks. We don't know, but that's the plan. And, um, I said, okay, no problem. Like, you know, I said, like, you know, I, it was so foreign to me that like, like, I just thought even at that point, you know, we're going to have years left and we're going to do another, we're going to do more than one trip. Yeah. Um, so I ended up telling him, you know, should I go to Boston or should I stay? This is Friday. He's like, go to Boston. Nothing's going to change between now and then I'm just going to get radiation tomorrow to my hip. Um, 
I ended up giving him a kiss goodbye. Um, I told him I loved, loved him, gave him a kiss. Left the hospital, went up to Boston. And Sunday morning, my mom called me and she said, come, come straight to the hospital. Um, and I, I, unfortunately I was with a buddy in Boston and I was like, I was young, you know, I'm 20 years old. I was, I was hungover. Yeah. It's one of like the things that pained me the most because it was so, it was just hard, so much harder to process because I was, I, I felt like shit that morning. And, um, I ended up driving home. I'm with a friend and I told my friend, like, I think I'm pretty sure my dad's going to die. Like, it's not good news. My mom's calling me. And, um, I ended up getting to the hospital and when I was there, they already upped like the morphine and the pain meds. And he was laying there in sort of a lucid state, but he wasn't, he wasn't, uh, he wasn't able to communicate at that point. Um, and I just remember collapsing in the room, uh, totally distraught and like just so unable to process what was actually going on. And, um, I just remember holding his hand, squeezing it, told him I loved him. And I just, I went into the waiting room because it was just so unbearably painful to, to sit there and be in that room. And, uh, a couple hours later, he ended up passing away and I was with my mom, my sisters and, uh, my dad's, my dad, my two aunts, my dad's two sisters. And, um, that's, that was the, my first, my, my first significant loss, you know, prior to that, I lost my, my, grandparents yeah i had a close aunt die but um nothing hit like this yeah i mean um um it's i I, you could see it tell i'm getting emotional over (laughs) here because we've we've heard stories of death on on this show and we've all gone through our own personal journeys of death and even the death of parents um but in just hearing you speak like things kind of stick out to me. And even earlier when you were talking about your father and how he worked for an agency um, and how he never perhaps, you know, admitted that he made a mistake by, you know, working for the agency, it kind of made me think about how most parents, and now that I'm a parent, I mean, I've been a parent for the last six months now, I can kind of attest to this. You just want better for your children. And so he almost just wanted you to have just better than he had. Um, and, you know, and, and it was clear in the way that you kind of articulated it, you know, that obviously I cannot define his legacy. You can define his legacy, but from what you're saying, you know, you are essentially his legacy. He wants you to be the best version of yourself and to be better than he was as good as he was. And that was, um, you know, the feeling I got from the way that you told, um, you know, the narrative. Um, I don't want to cut you off too much because obviously there's more, you know, that happens next. So let, let's just kind of continue the journey and then we'll come back, um, and, and kind of talk about it a little bit more. So now your father passed away. Let's talk about the, um, you know, weeks, months, year after that and, and kind of what that meant for you. Yeah. So I remember leaving the hospital at night and driving, I was in the back, the back seat and with my mom. My uncle drove us home and I just, like I said, like I could not even process, like it was so hard to truly accept the reality of like the the situation I was in. I, I there's, there's, there's not really words to describe it other than that. Like I've, I really couldn't process that my dad had died. Yeah. Um, I'm sure at that, in that moment, you know, now it's, 
it's quite matter of fact for me. It's, it's very easy. I've shared my story so many times. It's, it's, it's pretty easy for me to, to say my dad had died, but I'm sure in that moment, like I couldn't even put dad and death or dad died in the same sentence without totally breaking down. And, um, the, the days, the weeks, remember the, the morning after my mom came into my room and I woke up and just like depressed, feeling like shit. Yeah. And my mom just came in the room and laid down on the bed with me and, and gave me a hug. Yeah. And, you know, it's, it's, it's funny. Cause like in that moment, you, she, I'm sure wanted to do anything to take the feeling, the pain away from me. But, um, you know, there, there is unfortunately, like you when when you lose someone significant there's 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 not really words or actions that that someone else can do to to make you feel better yeah it's more just you know like you got to move you got to move forward and move through it on your own terms and you need to navigate on your own there's unfortunately in, at least in my experience um there's very little there's 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 nothing that someone can say or do to change the circumstances yeah um obviously there's words of comfort and things like that but it's tough and I would say moving, moving throughout the year, I ended up going. So this happened the summer going from my junior year to my senior year and had to go back to school. And so much of my focus became taking care of my mom. And all I wanted to do was provide for her, help her. And I, I like would beg her saying, I want to drop out so badly. Just let me go and work and I'll, I'll make some money and I'll help you out or no. Uh, she, she ended up, yeah, she worked, um, in a dentist office, okay. uh, like the front desk of a dentist office. And she did, she did some, uh, book bookkeeping as well. But, uh, you know, I, I just wanted to, I wanted to fill the void of, yes, of father, my yeah. dad. Yeah. And, but I did promise my dad that no matter what, I wouldn't drop out. So I made that yeah. commitment to him and, uh, follow, follow that through. It took me like an extra, it took me almost five, took me basically like five years to get my degree. But, um, that was, a, that was a commitment that he, he made me, he made me make with him. And it was tough because, I, you know, it's, it's, it's funny. I shared the story of how the worst thing in my life before college was, was not, not getting into the college I wanted. And yeah. then I finally got there and I had this, I had, I, I, I finally got there my junior year and two and a half months later, my dad was diagnosed with cancer yeah. and nine months later he died. Yeah. And going into my senior year, I did not want to be there whatsoever. And, you know, I made some amazing friends. Like I mentioned, yeah. they had this amazing entrepreneurship program. There was a lot that I had that I that I got from going, but it's it it was tough. You know, like yeah. people wanted to party Tuesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday night. And I was just like, get me out of here. I don't want to be here. Yeah. Um I I would say that I really had a challenging time with navigating my own grief. Yeah. Um it was very difficult for me to feel what I was actually feeling. And I experienced a tremendous amount of um, like anxiety around death. Sure. So I was all, I was constantly running to the doctor thinking that I was going to die. I remember, so working out's always been a big piece for me. And I would, I started getting panic attacks out of nowhere. I remember one time I was on online at Chipotle and I started feeling anxious. And all of a sudden I thought I was going to pass out. Yeah. And I would always check my, check my pulse like constantly because I was thinking that I was going to die. And um, my dad had a lot of uh, hip pain. He couldn't really walk. And I was like, I have hip pain. I need to go to the, the doctor. So I, that's how I, I really could not express my own grief. And I wouldn't necessarily say that I thought the world had it out for me, but yeah. I definitely found it very hard to 
relate to other people who hadn't experienced a significant loss. Yeah. And especially being in that, uh, being in a school setting where, you know, everyone's focused around what they're going to do next or the party or the girl or whatever they're focused on yeah. is that in that moment, it all just seems so insignificant. Yeah. Um, but a lot really changed for me. I ended up volunteering, getting involved in this organization experience camps, which is a free one week camp for kids that have lost a loved one. Okay. And I ended up learning about the organization. I grew up going to summer camp. I told the person who, who recruited me, I said, uh, just tell me the dates I'm there. And it's a five day free camp. I ended up going to Maine. Uh, today there's multiple camps and, um, I ended up going to, to the camp in Maine. I didn't know anyone. And, um, I could not have been more, I was nervous, but I was, could not have been be more excited for the opportunity at the end of the five days. Um, you know, you, you're with these kids who, uh, I was, I was with eight or nine year olds at the time. And there are these incredible kids who have lost someone so significant in their life. Yeah. And they come to this place where they, ha where they can just be kids again, where they run around, play games, play sports. And they also have this opportunity to multiple times throughout the week to, open up and share who they lost, how they lost them, um, and learn how, how to grieve essentially. And I remember at the end of the week feeling so moved by the kids and so inspired by seeing how these, these kids that were, uh, you know, half my age were able to stand up in front of 300 kids and share their story of who they lost, how they lost them. And I, I really just felt so fortunate. I felt so lucky in many ways that, like I had my dad until I was 20 years old. Yeah. Uh, you know, a lot of, a lot of those kids, especially in my bunk, they were all nine, eight or nine years old. And the, the robbery that I felt for them, uh, you know, I, I felt like I, I thought leading up to camp, wow, I, I, I'm unlucky. I'm robbed of, of, of this relationship. I, I, I'll never have with my dad from 20 yeah. plus, but I realized in that moment, like, I have it so good and I'm so lucky uh, to have the, the dad that I had, the relationship that I had, uh, all, all of that. And I remember calling my mom on my way home and I said, like, this was the best week ever. Um, I, we, we have it so good. And that, that was all I was able to, that, that, that was like all I was able to tell her because that's really what I felt so strongly that like, I, I felt truly that I was blessed, that I, that I was so lucky to have the dad I had, the relationship I had and the 20 years that I had. And I know sometimes, you know, that's, I, I feel sometimes, you know, I've heard other people who have, who have grieved uh, significant, someone significant in their life say like, you know, they, they have maybe a similar thinking, you know, I had 20 years uh, sure. that you sort of, uh, maybe you're not giving yourself the justice around the, the, the years that I had that you, that you lost, obviously. And, you know, it's not to say that it isn't unfair that my dad, that my dad wasn't here to see me get married and all the, the future things that will be. But yeah. I, I can't take away the how lucky I was to have what I had. So that's really what I felt from that. And I ended up, I'm still involved in the organization today. Um, but just move, moving moving forward in my own story. So every single summer I go to this camp. Uh, it's a big piece of me. This this upcoming summer will be my ninth year. So going up to my fourth, my fourth summer, um, we opened up a camp in Georgia. Mm -hmm. And I recruited a buddy of mine, my childhood friend who lost his dad and uh, when we were kids. And I recruited him and we drive down to this camp together in Georgia. We spend the week there. It was really awesome because I, I sort of lost touch with, 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 this is like my childhood best friend. And we sort of yeah. lost touch and uh, I recruit him and he's able to come here and give back. And also 
you know, we, we got to speak about his dad and his dad played a significant role in, in my childhood as well. Sure. And, um, it was awesome. We did, we do this road trip, we're driving home. Um, and when we get home, um, uh, he dropped me off at my childhood home. My mom's up, my mom's already sleeping. We got home at like 2 AM. Um, and the next morning I wake up and I'm so excited to tell my mom about another week at this camp and mm-hmm. the things that I learned, the, the amazing kids. And, um, my, my, my uncle happened to be there. Um, and I thought it was weird because I woke up first and normally my, my mom would always wake up first, but I didn't think much of it. And my mom came downstairs. I'm sitting on the couch on my computer, catching up with some work. And my mom comes downstairs and she says, I need to talk to you, uh, sits down with me on the couch. And she says that I've been diagnosed with cancer. Um, she said that I'm going to be okay. And she kept referencing, she, she kept referencing her nails. She said, my nails are really strong and that's a sign of strength and I'm going to be okay. And this isn't going to yeah. be like how, how it was with, with dad. I'm going to be okay. We're going to get through this. And at first I, I trying to just like process what she's telling me. And I'm hearing that she's telling me she's going to be okay. She's going to be okay. And then she said, though, it's, it's going to be, it's going to be challenging. It's going to be very tough. And it was sort of like, she sort of gave me permission to, to feel. And I just let out and started crying in her lap. And, you know, I, I would say in that moment, I, I knew that it actually wasn't going to be okay. I had, uh, I, you know, the world already showed me that like, there's no guarantees. And my dad told me it's going to be okay. I'm going to be okay. And, uh, when she told me, when she kept saying that, I'm like, in my head, I'm like, who's to say it's going to be okay. That's yeah. crazy. You know? Yeah. Um, but, um, and with her, the cancer was, it was a completely different experience with my dad. I was very sheltered from the reality and what was really going on. Now, you know, what's going on. Oh yeah. And so, but we didn't know how, just how bad it was going to be. So I asked my mom, what type of cancer? She said, we don't know yet, but we know that I have cancer. And my mom always said, if you want to get, if you get a cancer diagnosis, you want to get one with a no name, because that just means that there's money behind it. There's research behind it and there's yeah. treatment behind it. Yeah. Um, and my mom said, they don't, they don't know what it is yet. Um, this, this happened over the course of two days. Um, my mom was trying to, my mom said, they like, maybe you can get me some protein bars. I need to get some calories in. And maybe I'll like, maybe that will taste good. I remember I went to GNC and bought like every single bar they had. I came home with, I don't know, 50 bars. And, um, we, I, I come home, my mom's really having a tough time eating a day later. Uh, she's like, I really need to get to the hospital. Uh, she couldn't keep any of the food down. We take her to the hospital. She checked into the hospital and she never left. So, um, well, she did, she did leave one time to go to a different hospital. So we ended up taking her to the hospital and, um, they couldn't, they did, they weren't able to like diagnose what type of cancer it was. Then they said the hospital we're in, we're in Manhattan. So there's hospitals, yeah. you know, everywhere on the Upper East side. Yeah. Uh, so we originally took her to, uh, Cornell yeah. and then they're like, you should go to, uh, sorry, we took her to Sloan. They're like, we should take, you should go to Cornell. And then she ended up getting back to Sloan. So yeah. that was a whole different story of transferring her. But yeah. they checked into the hospital. We really never left the hospital. And 
she was alive for two months until she passed. And those two months were absolutely uh, the, the, the most challenging, toughest two months of, 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 of my life. Um, very much like my life was put on pause and every single day I'd wake up, I'd get to the hospital, spend time with her. I'd, and, um, you know, I know I mentioned to you too, before I had signed up for the marathon that year and, um, I would run home and that was, that's essentially what I did for two months. And, um, my, my mom, they, they still didn't identify the cancer actually until like almost until like almost, uh, four weeks later, five weeks later. And she ended up getting diagnosed with a cancer called, uh, undifferentiated pleomorphic sarcoma. Um, and I remember when we, when she got the diagnosis, like we were all in the room together and we were all, we all, you know, uh, we were devastated because, uh, you know, this is a cancer with a terrible name, something you never heard of and something you, you never heard of. So you thought there must be no, yeah, no, well, standing we, by, no research, no, no fundraising, nothing. Yes, really exactly. Kind of... And the, the cancer essentially like from my understanding of it, and I'm definitely not a doctor, but from my understanding of it is that the cancer hasn't decided what type of cancer it wants to become. Mm-hmm. So, um, there's not, there isn't like a, a treatment to pinpoint the cancer. And, um, the, the plan was that she would get, uh, she would try a chemo treatment and see if it would work. Um, and in the process, her, like her internals, her body was just breaking down. Yeah. She was on a, uh, she had like this, uh, nutrient tube through her nose. Yeah. Um, and like very, it was like almost overnight, like the mom that I, that I knew the mom that I was used to became this, became someone who couldn't eat. She had a feeding tube in her nose and, um, it, it was beyond traumatic. You know, she went through two, uh, two surgeries that were, um, two surgeries that had, uh, where they said you might not make it off, off through the surgery, you might not make it out alive. Um, and that was, that wasn't to like make her better. It was just to keep her alive just longer. Just keep her alive. Yeah. And, um, she made it to one chemo treatment and she ended up making it through both of those surgeries. She made it to one chemo treatment. And in that chemo treatment, um, at the end of the treatment, she was yelling in excruciating pain mm-hmm. and I'm sitting in the room with her and, you know, you want to do it's kind of like you, you want to do something. It's kind of like, yeah. you know, I share my mom giving me that hug after my dad died, but there's nothing, there's nothing you can do. Yeah. And I remember running out of the room, looking for someone, the nurse to come and help. And they're giving her, they're giving her more pain meds yeah. and nothing was helping. And she's just, she was yelling. And I never heard my mom yell like that feeling. Yeah. And that similarly, there were other times in, in throughout um, her, her time in the hospital where, um, her, her like blood pressure was through the roof at one point and she was yelling in pain and I'm in the room and you know, you're just, you're just, you're helpless. You can't yeah. do anything. It's not like you could sit there and say, are you okay? Cause you know, they're not. Yeah. So you have to watch them slowly, you know, kind of go through, uh, the pain and the agony and no, uh, it's, it's an extremely difficult, so hard it, to describe circumstance. Yeah. So, you know, that happened a couple of times. And after the first chemo treatment, they've like, I think maybe two days later, they came to us and they said, there's nothing, um, there's, there's nothing we can do. A doctor actually came in and he essentially said something. He knew that my dad had died. Mm -hmm. Um, 
you know, we got to know, like, you know, everyone in the hospital because we're there for two months. Yeah. And the doctor essentially said something like uh, to the effect of this is like getting struck by lightning twice. Like it has nothing to do with your dad's cancer. Yeah. This is just extremely unlucky circumstances. Yeah. Um, and I remember coming into the hospital and this is when they decided that my mom would move to hospice. There's nothing more they're going to do. And I remember coming to the hospital and telling my mom, life's so unfair. Mm-hmm. I said, you know, they, they already took, like the world already took dad from us and now I'm going to lose you. And my mom interrupted me and she said, life is unfair and life is also glorious. And she said, you have to go out and find, find your glory. And it was almost in that moment where, you know, like my entire perspective on the world changed. Yeah. Uh, you know, leading leading up to that moment, I was I, I wasn't suicidal, but I really I would lay in bed when I was home and just like I was I just felt there was no point to living. Like, what was the point? Yeah. Uh, everything felt gray, dull, and I'm I'm like a happy dude. I'm sure you could just tell yeah. from from this. You know, I'm smiling a lot. Everything felt so gray and terrible, and it just hit me in that moment that, you know, like life is unfair and life is also glorious. And I accepted that, like in that moment, that that's what I'm going to do. That's, that's, I'm going to go out in this world and find my glory. And I told my mom, uh, you know, like it's, I'm never, I told her, I'm never going to live through something harder than this because I've already lost that. And now I've lost you. I've lived through the most painful things I'll ever live through. And my mom once again interrupted me and she said, don't be so naive. The world will hurt you again. And I think, you know, there's, um, you know, some people might hear that and they might say that's harsh, but the, 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 no, it's extremely wise. It's extremely (laughs) wise. I mean, your parents, um, you know, just based on the clips that you've shared so far in in terms of what they've instilled in you and what they've kind of taught you in, in their final years, moments, days, um, speaks volumes, um, with regards to what they've equipped you with, mm. um, in a short period of time. And I just want to kind of make sure again, for co- contextual purposes. So you're around 25 at this point. Yeah. 20, 25, my, so my birthday, September, my mom died October 15th. So, um, like my last, the last few birthdays, like from 20 to 25 were kind of, my grandpa died when I was 23. So it was just like, it was a little bit brutal, but, um, to say so, the least. <laughs> so to, to just kind of put everything in perspective for the listeners out there. And, and, you know, one thing that Danny mentioned is he really has been smiling this whole time. I'm not smiling <laughs> listening to this story, but Danny has actually been smiling this whole time. But to put it into perspective for you all, like he mentioned, you know, the biggest thing he maybe faced in his life uh, at one point was not getting into the school that he wanted to get into. And then within a span of, you know, six, seven years after that, um, let's call it, he lost both his parents, uh, you know, in, in battles with rare cancers, um, you know, and, and lost them in devastating fashion. Um, the world came at him quick, but the world also came at you at a time where, you know, the majority of your peers were really just beginning to live. And all you were doing was dealing with death. Um, and so, you know, I, I don't necessarily want to go down that conversation unless you'd like to open it up, but at any point, you know, maybe a couple of years later, did you think that, um, you know, 
you grew up so quick that you never really lived your 20s. You never really had your younger 20s because, you know, you were growing up off the loss of your dad and then had to face the adversity, you know, of losing your mom. Mm. It's interesting. You know, even hearing you say that, I, I, I've never even thought about it like that. Um, and it's okay. I, look, I don't yeah, want to, yeah, <laughs> I, I, if it's something that doesn't matter to you, that's okay. But I think that, you know, for the sake of the audience, it's important to kind of point out that, you know, you never really know where life is going to take you. Um, and certain people go through different experiences in life, which really make them grow up fast. You know, for me and, and my story, um, you know, I, I felt like I, I lost a good portion of my childhood. And I felt like by the time I was in high school, I was, you know, just a little bit, you know, ahead of myself in terms of what I had picked up on life. And, you know, in, in this kind of situation, I feel like you graduated from high school, started off college, and then became an adult really quick. You didn't have time to mess around like a lot of people do in, in their 20s. Um, and, you know, I think that's really kind of shaped you because when you look at what you're doing right now uh, and, and and kind of the messaging that you're putting out there, and I think it all kind of goes back to what your mom taught you uh, when she told you that life is unfair, but life is also glorious. Um, and when you think about, you know, your purpose now and, and what you're putting out there and the way that you're inspiring those around you, um, there aren't many 29-year-olds out there uh, who got there as quick as you. Um, and, and so... Do you think so, about that? Yeah. So I will, I will say it's, it's, it's really interesting hearing you say that. And it's something that um, I, I actually want to spend some time thinking about because it's not something that's been posed to me necessarily. And I, I would agree wholeheartedly with what you're saying. Um, I will say I, I, I like, you know, you can't change the cards you're dealt. And I wouldn't like, even if you gave me the magic wand, I wouldn't. And the reason why I'm, I'm grateful for where I am today and the way I view the world is because if it weren't for what I lived through, I wouldn't see the world through the lens that I do. Yeah. And I feel, I feel sometimes like I'm like, I'm in the matrix, right? Like I am seeing something that other people might not be seeing but I don't really focus on like what I have versus what other people have and vice yeah. versa. It's more just the place that I went to after my mom died was I had, I had this tremendous realization that there are no guarantees. Tomorrow is not guaranteed. And knowing that and knowing that I too am going to die someday and I don't know when, yeah. I started to ask myself, how do I want to spend my limited time in this world? And little by little, I started to map more and more of what I want to do to start to design a life that I actually wanted to live. And I think that that's like, that's the part that I'm so grateful for. Yeah. That's the part where I, I feel so lucky because I, I, I've only had this realization as a result of what I lived through. I'm certain if my mom were still here, if my dad were still here, you know, I would not, I would not be thinking about how do I want to spend my time? And I think that that's something that really so few people spend their day, their week, their month, their life thinking about. I think a lot of people, unfortunately, make it to 60 or 70 years old. And only then do they may, might maybe realize that I could have done things differently. I yeah. should have done things differently. Um, you know, I, I, I say that story at the beginning with my dad because 
as I mentioned, I don't think that he he lived with this deep regret, but I am certain somewhere on his deathbed, he thought about, you know, what what if or what could have been. Yeah. And I think that that's like that's the biggest miss that yeah. I think so many people have in this world. And I feel compelled that that's my mission to help people realize that like there are no rules. Obviously, you know, you got to you got to yeah. you got to play legally, but for the most part, like there are no rules. There's no right or wrong. Yeah. You you have to define the rules you want to play by. And I think a lot of people don't even realize that like this is your life. You wake up, you have 24 hours. If you have your health, your safety, enough money to put some food on the table, you have like you have a world of opportunity in front of you. And yeah. you actually decide how you want to spend that time. No one else. And I think that that's something that's very broken. And I feel so compelled to help fix and help inspire people to recognize that they actually have the agency in their own life to take to take control and design a life that they want to live. I mean, you're spot on. Um, there's a lot of people out there that don't want to talk about death. There's a lot of yeah. people out there that fear death. There's a lot of people out there who think about death as kind of a an untouchable subject. Um, and you know, I'm not saying anyone is right or wrong. I think that, you know, everyone is kind of entitled to go about it as they see fit. Um, but I, I think it's interesting to kind of share, given what you've been through, that perhaps your perspective of death has shifted, given, you know, what you've learned about the value of life. Um, but I'd love to hear your take. Yeah. So I don't think um, I, I don't think that you need to experience significant death to have your own wake up to to life to living and i hope that people who hear my story can use my my story my own experience to their own benefit i think our own mortality is one of the most empowering things i think so many people think or believe it's not even a think like right everyone knows they're going to die everyone knows that death is a part of this this game called life but i think very few people truly believe it or they just don't really care to think about like, yeah, death will come, but it's going to happen when I'm 78 years old yeah. or 80 years old and I have this full life ahead of me. So I'm going to do these things and it's not going to have any, the, the choice I make won't have any significant impact in my life because I have all this time ahead of me. And I think this, the, sure, in many cases, people do make it to to 80 years old, but then I think a lot of people might make choices. I, I know it's not, I think I know people would live differently if they knew that death, if they knew when they die. Right. So I always yeah. say, if you knew you had 10 years left to live, what would you do differently? And I think a lot of people would, would write down change. a lot of things. <laughs> yeah. And I think if you wanted to take it a step further and you said, now, if you only had five years left to live, what would you do? And I think little by little, you'd shrink your list from 10 years yeah. to five years. And if I put, if I said three years, you have three years left to live, what would you do differently? And then if I said one year, you would do things even differently. And I think that those are the things, like the one year when you get to the minute, the one year, if I had one year left to live, how would I live? How would I spend my time? I think that's, those are the things that are really important to you. And I believe that the things that you would write down if you had a year left to live, those are the things that you should be doing every single day. And sure, some of them might not be like, it might not be, practical or possible, yeah. but those are the things that you should prioritize if it's not every day, every week, every month, or at least every year, because those are the things that actually matter in your life. And maybe three years is a little bit more like, 
short term with some vision five years. Sure. You have a little bit more time in 10 years. It's like, you might want to change career paths and try some things and travel, see some countries. And that's where, you know, you have, you have a lot more time, but still, I just, I think the power of time and understanding how valuable our time is can really help drive people to live differently. I, I, I think I, I really believe that like, I almost wish people would, would do an exercise similar to that and, and sit here and think about if I had a year left to live, what changes would I make? Because if, if death were actually a part of the equation, you would make, you would, you would, you would, you would go for it. You would take the jump, you would make the leap and you wouldn't even bat an eye. You know, I've, I've so many, um, I have so many stories in the two months from when my mom was sick, where I went for it. Like I chose to live differently as a result of knowing that she was going to die. And I'll share one of the, the, yeah, the biggest one. ones. Yeah. So, um, my, my, <laughs> so my, growing up, I had a, uh, I had this girl in my life who was okay. my, my childhood crush. Okay. Uh, she gave me a kiss on the cheek in the fourth grade. And ever okay. since then, uh, like we were, we were very close and that was it. She, one day in the fourth grade, she kissed me on the cheek. We were boyfriend and girlfriend. The next we were broken up. That was okay. fourth grade love. And we did K through 12 together. Yeah. And going into the 10th grade, she said, Hey, I'm switching schools. Uh-huh. Like a week before school started. Sure. I go to my mom and I say, Emily switching schools. Two days later, I tell Emily I'm switching schools too. Um, we did K through 12 together. And in college, we, we sort of like lost touch. We went to different colleges, but when we were home, from time to time, we'd see each other there. Yeah. And after, after college, um, we're both living in Manhattan. Um, I ended up getting involved in experience camps. She lost her dad growing up. Sure. And I tell her, hey, you should come to this thing. It's, it's amazing. It's going to be great. I tried to recruit her my first year because I didn't yeah. know anyone going. And sure. she lost her dad growing up. And, I, and she loved camp. And I'm like, this makes, this makes complete sense. You'd be a great fit. She passes on the opportunity. The, I get back the following year. I tell her again, hey, I'm doing this thing. You should come. She ends up signing up. And always my mom. So this goes on. And for she ends up getting involved. And um, a couple of years pass. And now we're we're back in each other's lives. But just as friends, we'd okay. go out for dinner here and there. Sure. Um, and my mom would always say, what about Emily? And I, yeah. I, had a, I had a different girlfriend at the time. And my mom's like, what about Emily? My sisters would say, what about Emily? And I would say, don't like, leave me alone. Let me live my yeah. life. Someday, I'll, someday when I'm ready, I'll ask at Emily. But for now, yeah. I just want to have a good time. Yeah. And um, I had no urgency. And my sisters would tell me, you know, you're, you're, you're being stupid because <laughs> um, as a sister would, because Emily will probably meet someone else. And it's, this isn't a movie. You're not going to yeah. run and interrupt her life and say, Oh, I really like you. Everyone knew that I liked her, but I would never yeah. tell anyone. Yeah. Um, and then for about a year, I was, I would, I would tell all my guy friends, I, I, I really like this Emily, but, um, <laughs> I'm not, I'm not going to tell her because like, I, I don't because really that's just want not to... what we do. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, like I'm, t- you know, going back to your original question or, uh, going back to the question from, from a bit ago where you said, um, I lost some of the childhood of my twenties. You know, I wanted to, I wanted to see other people. Yeah. You wanted to kind of live that life. I get it. Correct. So, you know, I think time, I have all this time in the world. The second my mom got sick. Yeah. All I thought about was 
who's the one person who I'd want in my life right now? And it was Emily. And I, (laughs) you know, it's, it's funny too, because there were moments like, so Emily and I would go on these, these dates, these, these friend dates together. And I told my friend like one time, yeah, I'm going to tell her how I feel. We go on the date. I call my friend the next day. He's like, so how'd it go? And I'm like, didn't tell her anything, but it was a good dinner. So that happened like a couple of times over the course of, I don't know, six months. Do you and, think she knew how you um, felt? I think deep down for sure. But yeah. um, there was no, there was no urgency. And I ended yeah. up, um, so my mom got sick. She was the one person I really wanted in my life. Yeah. And I ended up uh, telling my mom, um, I'm going to, I'm going to tell Emily how I feel. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, my mom, my mom's in the hospital, but I'm sure that she was, she was loving this because deep down, that's really what she wanted. And, um, I ended up going out for, for dinner and I, I told her, uh, we go out for dinner. My mom's in the hospital and I, we go for this dinner at the end, we get ice cream and we're walking. And I say, just curious, do you think there could be, would you ever see more to us than just friends? And she was called soft guard, never saw it coming. And what came out of her mouth didn't even make sense. And she's like, why are you asking? And I'm like, I'm just curious. Um, obviously it was more than just curious, but, um, I go back to the hospital next day. I tell my mom. So I kind of told Emily how I feel. Hmm. And I tell my mom what happened. And I was like, I don't think I really like when she asked me why I'm asking, I'm like, I'm just curious. I was like, I think I need to do, I think I need to tell her more. But my mom's like, don't worry, she'll come around. Two days later, I'm back with Emily and I tell her how I, I tell her how I really feel. And I just said, I'm not saying like I have a lot going on right now, and I'm not saying that I want to date you today, tomorrow, a week from now, a month from now, a year from now, but I can't see a future where we don't at least give it a shot. Yeah. Um, and nothing happened. Um, we both agreed, like now is not the time to be getting into a serious relationship. My mom's sure. dying in the hospital. Sure. Um, and about a week later, I told my mom and she's, she told me she'll come around. And about a week later, um, my, my mom died and mm-hmm. I ended up marrying Emily. And I think that, you know, that's I'm so happy. Uh, <laughs> that's how the story ended, by the way, because that's what I was thinking may have happened. But I was I was hoping Mile 40 hasn't heard a good love story yet. So this is this is the Mile 40 love story we've all been waiting for. So, you know, that's and there was there were so many moments like that in the hospital where it, it was less like life lesson after life lesson thrown at me. But that's, that's my, my sister ended up my mom, one of my mom's last wishes was to see my sister get married. So, uh, we threw together a wedding in 24 hours. Yeah. My mom's best friends came to the hospital. Um, we had this complete celebration in like the common area in the hospital. They rolled my mom out in in the hospital bed and she got to see my, my sister get married. And there, we had a pianist actually come in uh, like um, the rabbi arranged for a pianist yeah. to come in on an electric piano. And there was like singing, dancing. And amazing. it was, it was, and Emily, Emily was there. And um, just as a friend at that point, but um, you know, it was, it was like in these moments where death, death is right. Like it's staring you in the eye. You know, that the, one of the most important people in my life is yeah. going to die in I don't know if it's going to be a day, a week, a month, but it's, it's right there. It's staring you dead, dead in the face. 
And it's in that where you recognize like just just how fragile life is and to, to go for side it. by side. They're parallel. You have your mother next to Emily and it's like, you know, the end of, you know, your mom's life is the beginning of perhaps your new life, um, you know, with someone else. And it's it, it it's I can't even, you know, just hearing you talk about being in that moment. Yeah. That so, parallel. you know, it's 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 for that and so many other reasons why I'm forever grateful for my losses. And it's not to say that it sucks because it does. But like, you know, I think so many people would live their life differently if they truly if they could stare their own death in the eyes and realize that they, too, are going to die. You know, I I, I it's it's crazy to think. Um, just how different my life would be if like my mom and dad were still alive. Yeah. And I can't imagine the, the insignificant things that would hold weight in my life. You know, I, I, I mentioned that the hardest thing before my dad was not getting to that college. And I look back on that moment and it's just like, you know, we, we get hung up in life thinking that things that matter don't really matter. And it's, it's, it's in the moment of like life and death where, you sort of have this this great realization that like these are the things that really matter in my life. These are the things I'm going to prioritize. This is the girl I'm going to go and ask out because I there's no reason to not go for it. This is the business I want to build and I'm going to leave the the job I hate or leave the the business that I that I don't like anymore to go and pursue what I really want because who knows like tomorrow tomorrow might be it. Yeah. And I I just believe that that is that is something that we all as human beings can do can 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 it can really help us just put push us forward to do to live the life we actually want to live i couldn't agree more i'm going to ask you a challenging question you've obviously been through something that not many people can relate to especially in the context of how it happened when it happened and um all the other circumstances around it and now you know you're you're using what you've learned to empower those around you. And the um, dilemma I feel like is that you are a small voice in a very big pond. And while I think your message is of utmost importance, and I think it's absolutely critical that everybody out there, you know, listening to this, not listening to this, someone that comes across anything you put out into the world, whether it's through your platform or, you know, through your interactions with others, kind of soaks in a little bit of this knowledge. I think one of the things that is a little bit challenging is that a lot of times people see this and they still carry on with their lives because it's almost like a message that they're like, yeah, yeah, that's right. But I, I don't have time for this. I need, I, you mm. know, I, I have to take care of, you know, this meeting or I have to kind of go about this. And I say that because I know you post a lot on LinkedIn and, you know, I love the things that you put out there. Uh, but when you think about, you know, why people go on LinkedIn, um, you know, this must, must take up such little headspace for some people, um, mm. you know, in that, on that kind of platform. Um, so I, I wonder for you, like your message is so powerful um, and it really does need to be here, heard by 
every single person out there, especially the people on LinkedIn, honestly, because they're the people not, I don't want to be judgmental or kind of put everybody in one basket, but a lot of times it's like the people who are so busy in their careers that don't have time to focus, you know, on, on the little things that count. Um, and so do you ever get frustrated, um, you know, perhaps by, um, thinking that this subject doesn't necessarily get as much airtime as it should in the greater landscape of things that people should be talking about. And sorry, sorry for be, that being a long-winded question. No, absolutely. So I'd be lying if I didn't admit that I've been frustrated in the past. Mm -hmm. um, I think, in, so initially when I started my show, Bits of Gold, I was so focused on downloads, listens, yep. who's tuning in, um, that eventually it, it drained the, it like sucked the fun out of it. And I don't know, I was 20, 25 episodes in, which is still a good amount. Like that's a lot yeah. of work required. Yep. And um, I'm not still not really making any money for my show and I'm not making <laughs> any money for my show then. And uh, I, I started to think like, is this a good use of my time? Why is it not growing more? This kind of sucks. Yeah. And like I said, like I just sucked, it sucked all the fun out of it. Yeah. Now I'd say that I've shifted my mindset where I'm having like the the most fun. Like I've I could sit here and talk to you. Yeah. And I know you're gonna come on my show and I'm very excited for that. Like I have a platform that keeps on growing. And I feel like it's almost it's it, it feels as if it's compounding where the content is evergreen, the content can can be heard forever. And I I feel as if if it helps someone somewhere, it's yeah. worth it. Yep. Um, you know, obviously I'd love to turn this into um a business in a book that I'll eventually write, sure. um, in speaking. But regardless, I just feel I like I, I feel certain that someone somewhere will listen to this and it yeah. will help them. Yeah. And I think that that makes it all the worthwhile. Obviously, you know, you you it's very difficult to reach the masses. And I think also. Um, regardless of like what my future personally holds, I think that in general, I think that like death is something that a lot of people don't want to talk about. It's something that a lot of people don't want to think about. And I think that that makes maybe it challenging as well. Yeah. Um, but I'm, but I'm certain someone somewhere will hear my story and it will help them. I think about the kids that I volunteer with the kids that I, that I help every single summer at experience camps and, I mean, that alone, I feel, you know, I think, I think something that, um, and I have a big network now, people who've, who've lost someone significant sure. young in their life. And sometimes, you know, we, we talk about like a hypothetical, if you had the magic wand and you could wave it, would you bring your parents back? Yeah. You know, we have these relationships, this realization around, uh, the fragility in life and all these things that have come about as a result. And like, I, I feel personally like I want to I want to continue to help people and use my story as 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 a way for other people to learn from it to recognize that they too are going to die and to hopefully help them ask themselves a really what I believe is one of the most empowering questions which is how do I want to spend my time yeah. I think like forgetting all like the death stuff and loss sure. I think if a lot of people can just ask themselves that, um, it's it's worthwhile because I I think you don't even like sure if you can bring yourself 
to realize that you two are going to die. I think it will push you to, to focus on things that might not, you might not focus on or you might delay and say, I'll do that someday. Yeah. But I just think that there's a lot of like, I think no one asks, how do you want to spend your time? I, I think a lot of people don't even realize that that's a choice. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I, I think back to the conversation I had in the hot tub with my dad when I said, how do I build something great? He said, find what you're passionate about and you'll build something great. Sure. I think there's some truth to that, but I think a way better question to ask yourself isn't what's your passion or it's, it's, it's how do you want to spend your time? Because like, yeah. that's, that's it at the end of the day. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I, what you said about if only one person takes something away is extremely critical. I, I, that, that is exactly how I've approached my platform too. When I wrote Break Barriers, it was the same idea. I, I didn't know how to write a book. I didn't know if anyone was going to buy the book. And honestly, it was a big investment. And I thought to myself, as long as only one person gets something out of reading this book, then that's all that matters at this point in time. And it's something that I wanted to do, not something I felt like I was compelled to do or had to do. It's something that um, you know, I, I had felt was you know, something that was seeing my passion through and and felt like it was my calling to do and and similar to you all it takes is one person to be impacted to feel like um you know the purpose is there i'm i'm sure i just i don't mean to interrupt you but yeah. i'm sure more than one person reached out to you after reading your book saying that your book changed their life or had some significant impact yeah and and for me that that it, all it takes is like the one individual every now and then who says, Hey, like I came upon this or I stumbled upon that, or I heard you say that, or, you know, I read that and that's what keeps it going. It's not, and, and this is, you know, we've had a couple of, um, other podcasters on here, other authors on here. And the truth of the matter is the one thing that's consistent is you cannot focus in on the numbers that the, the, the listens, the downloads, the book sales, et cetera. Yeah. They're all great. And they're all, you know, maybe from a business perspective, something that you keep kind of um, a hold on to. But at the end of the day, I think one thing that unifies unifies every single person who's spoken on Mile 40 and, and ha have has kind of um, touched on these platforms is none of that really matters. The only thing that really matters is the impact it has on that one individual. And, and that's really the only thing that we kind of kind of walk away from saying, all right, like, that was the job. That was the mission. Mm. All it took was one. Um, um, see, he threw me off guard, but I Con do have content. Yeah. You know, the, the, the interesting thing with content is there's so much content today Yeah, that it's, it's just, it's, it's hard to, it's hard to stand out. It's extremely hard to build a community, but yeah, you know, I think, I think it's sort of on the micro and I think for a lot of it, and I know this is more getting into like the business aspect, but you know, your, your book is going to be evergreen. It's not like the, yeah. the content in there will never, uh, will no longer be relevant or your podcast won't be relevant. It's like that content can live forever and, um, it will help someone somewhere, people somewhere. And, uh, I'm, I'm sure from a business standpoint, you know, all of it does help as well. Yeah. Uh, but you know, I'm sure similar to, to myself, like we don't, we don't do this for, there are a lot of ways that I could cook up that are far easier to go and make money. And, um, you know, like if I wanted to build a business, there are much easier businesses, um, that I could come up with right now, probably in speaking with you that are worthy of pursuit. Um, yeah. but that's not, you know, like, I think that asking yourself, 
you know, I, I think you essentially asked, you know, how I think about it. It's not, it's not this, none of this has anything to do with money. And that's not the question that I ask myself, you know, how do I maximize yeah. how much money I can make? It's, it's how do I want to spend my time? Yeah. And this, like, this is it. This yeah. is it. And so actually, uh, that's my last question is <laughs> one of the questions that you said to ask yourself, Danny, if you only had one more year ahead of you, what would you change? <laughs> um, so, you know, I, I always say that this is where you get into the nitty gritty. You get into the micro of really what matters in your life. And for me, what I would do differently and like really live by it is one thing that always stands out is just use of technology. Like I would leave my phone at home and be so much more present in the moment. Um, you know, I think that that this is like, this is where oh, like, I'm going to go out with friends today, or I'm going to go out with my wife. I'm not going to touch my phone when we're out. I'm not going to pick up my phone. I'm not going to look at my phone. Um, you know, and that might sound minute and silly, but it's something as simple as that, where it's like, I think I would just be a lot more present to the everyday. I, I will say though. So, um, I, 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 I have this thing that I call like your daily vitamins. And I think I heard Jesse Itzler call it your daily vitamins at one point. But um, I, I, I think that one thing that you could just pull from, if, this were, if you had a year left to live, if you were to actually sit down and make that list, there would probably be a handful of things that you would want to do. Yeah. And it might be travel. It sure. might be uh, like do an Ironman or something like that. Uh, ask this girl out, whatever it may be. And I think you can make the list. And I think a lot of those things are actually really easy to incorporate into your life to make your life a lot better and a lot happier. Um, so, you know, through this exercise, it's like, I realize every single day, I want to wake up with gratitude. I want to start my day with gratitude. I want to journal a couple of times a week. I want to block off time to see, to see friends. I want to put my phone down when I'm not, when I'm going on a date. And through this exercise, it's like I made a list of these things that I do on a daily basis that I prioritize that are like non-negotiables. I do it every single day. And through that, I'm happier as a result. Yeah. And I think that that's something that this exercise can really help someone do in their own life. Danny, thank you so much. I mean, I think the lessons here are just kind of um, so valuable and I, I could even tell just that looking at you right now and for listeners out there, he's just scratching the surface. There's just so much more that Danny could dive into. And um, I hope that what you all will do um, as a follow-up to this is check out Bits of Gold and 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 look into his platform. And is there anywhere people could find you um, or that you know you prefer that people reach out to you? Uh, bitsofgold.co. If you want to follow me on LinkedIn, I'm on there and you could get in touch with me there. Thanks so much for coming on board. We really appreciate it. Um, you know, welcome to the Mile 40 family and, and really good to have you. And thank you for sharing the first love story of Mile 40. <laughs> Thanks so much for having me on. Thank you for listening today. If you enjoyed this episode of the Mile 40 Podcast, go ahead, subscribe, leave a review, and share the word. Thank you for being a part of the Mile 40 family, and let's unite in showing the world that comebacks are always greater than setbacks.